Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live on Wego 91.1 at 8 a.m. on Thursdays, or whatever time it is, wherever you're listening. Um, this week's episode is going to look a little bit different. I don't have a guest to in- uh, introduce today, which is a first for us since our first episode. So it's going to be an interesting episode. But we wanted to talk about a unique um, research class slash project that we're involved here at Auburn that we spoke a little bit about during our first episode this season with Dr. Gaddis and Dr. Ebert. But now, you know, three months down the line, we know a lot more and we feel like we can speak about this with a lot more confidence. And we wanted to use this week to highlight some of the work our fellow Auburn students and ourselves are doing to uncover the untold stories right in our region of Alabama. So we got involved with this class, and maybe Victoria has a slightly different story than me, and I just saw it on the Honors College page of just like different classes that I would take and I could take in the fall semester. Um, It was just sort of hiding there, um, and I decided to take it. called it was um, a research seminar called black community stories in alabama and i didn't really know much about it it was kind of a confusing uh summary to me but i knew that it still seemed really interesting and i knew that both dr gaddis and dr ebert were there and i knew from their reputation in the history department that they were fantastic professors and so i decided to take it and i'm very grateful that i did i feel like even though i still have another month left of this class would um i'm grateful for this opportunity. I feel like I've learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with you, Sophia. And I feel like my path to discovering the class was pretty similar after looking through the list of different honors classes to take and seeing the uh, Black Community Stories in Alabama being taught by the history department as a special research class. I thought it would be a great opportunity to kind of, you know, get insight into what history research could look like down the road. And I think that it is absolutely delivered on that and more uh, with what we're getting to do uh, this semester. Yeah, so as a, like a brief overview of what we're doing for the class, um, the goal is for the ultimate goal of presenting research at the Appalachian Regional Commission um, in early December of this year. But this research we're specifically presenting is the community of Camp Hill, which will be the focus of today's episode. Um, I'm basically trying to work, our focus is a heritage tourism project, so we're basically creating tourism sites that people will want to go visit to generate a much bigger economy for the town of Camp Hill. Yeah, absolutely. And we've kind of been uh, pinpointing on the fact throughout the class that this is an important project, not only because it's giving us that research experience, but because Auburn University is a land-grant university. It's focused on part of its mission of serving the greater Alabama region. And this is a super, super great project to kind of hone in on that part of Auburn University's mission. Yeah. So to start us off, I wanted to ask, I'm going to put you, Victoria, on the spot (laughs) um, about, and to connect it back to our theme this semester of uncovering untold stories. So how do you think that the Camp Hill story and our work with Camp Hill uh, 
ties into the community of Camp Hill as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I feel like our work with Camp Hill is definitely a pinnacle of what our theme has been this semester of uncovering untold stories. And here in Camp Hill, the untold stories are really all of the stories that make the community what it is. So we've gotten the opportunity to get to go and visit Camp Hill earlier this semester and are definitely hoping hoping to return at some point here soon. But after visiting and getting to talk with different representatives from Camp Hill and uh, reading different sources that uh, our professors have put together for us and the ones that we have found um, during our own research processes, we've really realized that the story of Camp Hill is so dynamic and it involves a lot of different unique actors, but that in addition to this, they all kind of correlate and tie together at a single point, which is Appalachian community stories. And that's kind of what we've been having as our common thread while we're working on developing the different public history landmarks that we want to implement in Camp Hill. And so realizing that the people of Camp Hill are a diverse community with a lot of really important background stories uh, that haven't really been highlighted or told or made really publicly available for the casual searcher or visitor to uh, discover has been the really the highlight point of our class and kind of that pinnacle moment of realizing what our role is with uncovering untold stories. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think specifically for this episode, it really ties into that theme because I think uh, both in the class and researching for this episode, it was really difficult to find a lot of this information. A lot of it is by word of mouth, and like compared to Dr. Gaddis and Dr. Ubera, we just don't have those same connections and have to sort of rely on them to sort of talk to us about those things. And like even for someone who would know absolutely nothing about Camp Hill, it's almost impossible to find really information. Like if you were to Google Camp Hill, you pull up the Wikipedia page, it's a very short, small page. It has like a very brief overview of the town. It has like a paragraph on the sharecroppers union, which will be a large focus of our episode today, but very little information about it based off of the um, description on Wikipedia. And then it briefly talks about the census and that's about it. And that's just not truly enough to sort of describe the importance of Camp Hill and talking about the history of it it's not a complete picture of it by any means and like no wikipedia is a complete page of anything but it's really just like a drained version of the town and it's a little bit disappointing to see and like my hope with this podcast and well as like our hope with the arc um and like our work as just a whole is to create more accessible ways to learn more about the history of the town but also just like just just make yeah just making more accessible ways to learn and making uh, awareness more uh, more widespread because like it is a really fantastic town I, we had a really great time when we visited visited it back in September and I would I really hope more people get to learn, hear more about it yeah I absolutely agree and I think that that's such a exciting thing that this class is having to offer for us is kind of that opportunity to get in on the ground level of what public history work is and kind of just seeing the importance of the role of historians in having that leverage, you know, in telling untold stories, and especially for 
community development as well. Those two factors are tying in really nicely here in our class and for Camp Hill. And we're hoping that by uncovering these untold stories, we'll get to help highlight a community that has so many great ones, while also kind of helping them economically with leveraging these stories as opportunities to draw more people in. Yeah, and particularly with the Appalachian Regional Commission, um, we're really trying to push that Camp Hill has the same amount of value as other Appalachian communities. Camp Hill is kind of on the lower outskirts of Appalachia, like very south, one of the very last counties. But we still believe that it embodies a lot of the same characteristics and virtues of the Appalachian people and still deserves the ARC's funding and support and um, dedication to this community, as well as some other more northern counties that you would typically think of when you think of Appalachian communities. Um, Victoria, would you like to talk more about how, like, about our idea of uh, Appalachian community stories within Camp Hill? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so as we were kind of working towards building up what our project, like, proposals would be for what we're, we'd be working on for the majority of the semester, we were kind of trying to think of what is, like, a common narrative that we can build everything around. And after getting to talk with the people of Camp Hill and reading different sources and things like that, we kind of quickly realized that there's not really one like pivotal moment that defines this community and that rather it's a whole conglomeration of different different elements, different stories, different people, different actors that are making Camp Hill into what it has become today. So we kind of coined this term a community of Appalachian stories or a Appalachian community story to tie everything together and kind of pinpoint that while Camp Hill is on the edge of Appalachia, the uh, common personalities, the common, like, you know, motivating factors of what makes Appalachia such a unique region within the U.S. is existent for the people of Camp Hill. And that overall, well, by telling these stories, we're not only enhancing the Appalachian narrative, but we're also enhancing the Camp Hill narrative. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, so hopefully the work that we're hoping to present at the ARC in December is um, overall just like a general PowerPoint of everything that we plan on talking about. But our main sort of focus is four like road signs that people who are visiting Camp Hill will be able to um, visit and learn more about. So one of them is Edward Bell High School, the railroad, um, Universalist Church, and then do you remember the last one? Sharecroppers Union. Yes. Oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> oh, I can never remember. Um, so those are sort of, we decided that those were kind of four major points in Appalachian history, and we're hoping that with the work that we focus on on those, we'll be able to do more in the future and continue to make a bigger space for the um, for tourism. Another big focus is a website that will kind of not only like show people where those um, signs will be, but also providing photos and more information about the history and the community, similar to what we're doing with the podcast, but in a written format. Um, but that will allow you to see the visuals because as much as like we I think that podcasting is a really accessible format. Um, we can't show you visuals um, at, at our current state, um, which speaking of which we're hoping um, when it comes to this episode, we're currently live, but we're hoping to do a little bit of editing and try something new with this episode. And we'll, this will be up a little bit later than usual. And um, 
hopefully at that point we'll be able to put up some photos and more information with this podcast as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah. Yeah. Would you like, would, do you have anything else you would like to add for the Appalachian Regional Commission? Ooh. Um, I feel like we've covered a good, good portion of it. And something that's kind of neat to think about with the Appalachian Regional Commission is that its work is so uh, versatile and that it gets to do a lot of really unique development projects throughout the region of Appalachia. So it's cool to get to see how many different things they've done from uh, infrastructure projects to more like history, uh, culture, humanities focused projects. So we're excited that ours is kind of, you know, in between where it's going to work on enhancing infrastructure, but it's also um, going to be accomplishing that through the historical narrative that it's going to build. That's really great. Um, so for our next segment, we're going to start to dive into the community of Camp Hill and its history. Um, so stay tuned and we'll see you in two minutes. All right, and welcome back. If you're just joining us, Victoria and I do not have a guest this week. We're focusing on the community of Camp Hill and telling its story. Um, so to start off, well, what is Camp Hill? So for our local Auburn people, it's about 30 minutes away. Um, and according to the 2020 census, uh, there's about a thousand people that live in Camp Hill. Um, and it's a predominantly black town with a total area of 9.1 square miles. According to encyclopedia of, Alabama of alabama.org, the name Camp Hill likely originated from the area's popularity as a site for camping. Um, the town, started in the 1830s, was much, mostly focused on agriculture, um, and it experienced a large growth and change when the Savannah and Memphis Railroad arrived in 1870, and the town was incorporated in 1895. Um, this changed in the 1970s when passenger trains ceased operations, and the commercial center of the town began to leave, taking their business with them. And this has resulted in a severe this resulted in a severe loss of economic development opportunities for Camp Hill, leading to its current lack of infrastructure and industry. Um, and a lot of these buildings that are no longer filled with businesses are owned by the Zellers family. Um, I think you might do you know a little bit more about the Zellers family? I think so. Yeah. So the Zellers family is a really it's a, a daughter and grandfather pair i believe um and they uh own according to the source i found they own half of camp hill's empty units and seek to restore them one by one so this pair found the uh kind of closed and uh like, I don't know, losing uh, interest downtown, and they wanted to use their resources and leverage to try and help revive the downtown into an area that could be more bustling and offer more economic opportunities. So according to uh, the Outlook, I found that uh, everything sits in various stages of decay currently in Camp Hill. There is one multi-story building which was once home to a grocery store and theater, but it is now just a red brick shell with vines growing out of the windows and roof. 
So, Emberly Zellers, who's 32, was raised by her grandfather in Auburn and has been visiting Camp Hill as long as she can remember. Her grandfather, who's John Zellers, has owned many of the properties on South Main Street since the 80s, but has yet to see a return on his investment. So, um, Miss Zellers said that she's been here for over 30 years and they still haven't made a dime out of the area. And that since Ms. Zellers left Alabama, she earned uh, degrees, went to college, and has a job working for the federal government. So she's working with her grandfather now in addition to her professional career to try and get some more returns on that Camp Hill. Yeah. Um, so, another, so one of the big parts of Camp Hill that we, I wanted to focus on for the podcast episode is the First Universalist Church of Camp Hill. Um, it's listed listed on the Alabama Register of Landmarks and Heritage, and it was established in 1846 as Liberty Universalist Church, and then changed its name in 1909. The current building where it stands today was built in 1907 with local material and was designed by architect Daniel A. Heimlich. Um, it's the largest. It was the largest Universalist church in the southeastern southeastern U.S. for the first half of the 20th century, um, and sort of just like um a big overarching theme or like a big part of uh, i guess to summarize universalism um according to the encyclopedia britannica the universalists believed it was it, it impossible that a loving god would elect only a portion of humankind to salvation and doom the rest to eternal punishment they insisted that punishment in the afterlife was for a limited period in which the soul was purified and prepared for an eternity in the presence of god um, so the Universalist Church in Camp Hill was founded by a universal, Universalist minister named Lyman Ward, who then would later found the Southern Industrial Institute, which later became the Lyman Ward Military Cad- Academy, but which still exists today, but is now known as the Southern Preparatory Academy, which is a private military school for boys in grades 6 to, six to 12. Um, that have small class sizes with around 130 men. Um, and it's in the community today. Um, it's, I think it's predominantly like out of the area students. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about education in Camp Hill in a second, but um, mo- most of the kids in Camp Hill are going to schools in the Dadeville area as opposed to like a Camp Hill school. Right, yeah, yeah. And something that we've talked about in class with the Universalist Church is how much of a center of the community it kind of evolved into during its uh, heyday, really. And that in addition to being a big node for the community, it was also something that uh, was kind of a shining light in the Universalist Church uh, more nationally as well, and that it played an important role in the history of that uh, faith as well, which is really neat. Yeah, and we had a chance to go visit it when we were back, uh, when we were in Camp Hill in September, and it's really beautiful. Sort of um, definitely shows its age now and isn't used as much, but it's still a really beautiful space. Absolutely. Um, Now, sort of switching focus a little bit um, into more of the education in Camp Hill. Um, The main sort of focus here is Edward Bell High School, which was originally named Tallapoosa County Training School. In 1931, it was the first high school for African-Americans in Tallapoosa County. Um, And interestingly enough, um, the citizens of the community built its first gymnasium in 1947, 
but it wouldn't last for very long because in the late 1950s, the building was burned um, and was completely destroyed, and a new building was built nearby. Um, um, And it was named after Edward Bell, a former beloved principal. Their colors were royal blue and white, and their mascot was a bear. Um, You probably noticed that I'm using the word was, and that was because it was closed in 2015. because of lack of funding and lack of students yeah yeah and that's another another topic that we've kind of gotten to spend uh class discussing is how the evolution of education in camp hill kind of ties to uh the different uh perspectives on what education should look like leading to and after the brown versus board supreme court decision and that a lot of the logistics behind education especially in this region had to evolve rather quickly uh to fit the perspectives of what the different leaders of camp hill and the different leaders of the this region of alabama kind of saw Mm -hmm. uh as Um, the direction they wanted to take education. So this kind of led to a diaspora, I guess you could say, of um, where like people of Camp Hill received their education and even contributed to uh, kind of almost an idea of a lost generation or a group of students that were really heavily disadvantaged through a lack of convenient education or a building that could really uh, provide the education for them in a feasible distance. Yeah. Um, that's a really great point. Thank you for adding that. Yeah. Um, then sort of going back to like our visit in Camp Hill, we had a really great opportunity while we were there to meet Rufus, a community member who's focused on creating a community kitchen in which he prepares meals for the local community there. He even made us a meal and it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and yeah, and the community also as well as working on, um, or currently has a food bank set up for itself as well. Um, so it's a lot of really great inter-community support. And I think there's just, even though it's small and definitely um, been through a lot of struggle, I think there's a lot of love within it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, overall, something that we've definitely seen and want to continue to highlight is just the uh, really the amount of agency the people of Camp Hill have and their resiliency in working hard to overcome the multiple different challenges that have faced them across their history. And especially in recent years, uh, recent months, honestly, um, this community has seen a lot. They recently, I guess, the near the end of the summer, there was a huge hailstorm that caused a lot of damage to Camp Hill and has kind of been a huge uh, roadblock for a lot of the progress that the town wants to make. So so as we're doing this history work and seeing that this this town has gone through a lot in the last couple of months and we want to give them an opportunity to have a new advantage added to them rather than a disadvantage and kind of work to continue to help highlight how resilient they are and how hard they work to, you know, maintain their existence and community. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um So we're going to go to our next ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live on Wingle 91.1 FM. Um, If you're just joining us, we're talking about the community of Camp Hill and its history. And we're about to get into a large portion of our episode today, which will be the history of the Sharecroppers Union. 
So to start off, what is sharecropping? Um, according to History.com, sharecropping is a type of farming which farmies, farm, families rent small plots of land to a landowner, landowner in return for a portion of their crop to be given to the landowner at the end of the year. Um, it began after um, the Civil War, um, which allowed landowners to reestablish a labor force while um, giving those who were providing the labor a, a means of sustenance through having work and food and a place to live. Um, it, uh, it made it very difficult for economic mobility of those laborers for most of the Reconstruction era. era. Um, and it consisted of not only just those who were form who uh, were formerly enslaved and their descendants, but also um, poor white people as well. So to sort of set the scene, um, it is Camp Hill in the early 1930s. Um, farming was made very difficult after the First World War. Um, cotton pri prices had severely uh, th um, plummeted, and if you'll remember from a couple episodes ago when we had Dr. Flint on, um, we spoke about the bull weevil and how um, Enterprise has a statue to it because it had sort of destroyed a lot of their cotton plants um, and that had led to ultimately good things for the Enterprise economy. But for a lot of other places in Alabama, such as Camp Hill, it destroyed a large portion of those crops of cotton, and that was a sense of livelihood for mo for all most a large portion of these people, and it was pretty devastating. You're also also keep in mind the Great Depression began in 1929, and it undermined a lot of freedom that these sharecroppers had previously had because there was a lot less cash than previously had been before, um, and just a lot less economic freedom and mobility than they had previously had. Um, so, um, obviously you can imagine a lot of economic struggles leads to sort of a, I guess, a rise in communism at this time. Um, and communism had sort of, uh, communists were sort of coming to the South. And Birmingham communists had sort of established links to the cotton or the black belt in 1931. Um, they had previously ignored this area because they believed that sharecroppers didn't have the same day-to-day day -day experiences or like commonality that industrial workers did, and they were really focused on um, being able to build that community amongst um, industrial workers that would um, like be inspiring to revolt and take over these factories and didn't believe that sharecroppers would have that same um, mentality and experience because it's a lot more of an isolated um, profession at the time. Um, and our story starts in January of 1931, in which there was a large um, sharecropper uprising in Arkansas. And at this point, these Birmingham communists begin to realize the opportunity that um, Alabama or just more Southern um, sharecroppers have as a whole and begin to push for Alabama farmers to follow, they release a statement in the Southern Worker, quote, call mass meetings in each township and on each large plantation. Set up farmers relief councils at these meetings. Organize hunger marches on the towns to demand food and clothing from the supply merchants and the bankers who have sucked you dry year after year. Join hands with the unemployed workers at the towns and with their organizations which are fighting for the same battle of bread. This was met with a pretty positive response because there was a lot of 
anger and unrest at the time. One farmer wrote back that the people in his community were, quote, mighty close to the breaking point. Um, and people began to see the logic in the Communist Party that they had previously not seen before or just sort of seen their side and their mentality more. Um, eventually, communist groups found their way to Tallapoosa County, which is where Camp Hill is located via these Birmingham officials. Um, local tenant farmers showed support for the system and had poten the potential to allow for, for more collective action and leverage against the system that was still suppressing their economic mobility after slavery was abolished. Um, on the ground level, people began to sort of spread this idea of communism and um, revolt or change within the system. Local school teacher Ellie Milner played an important role in the founding of the CSU in Tallapoosa County. She established critical links between sharecroppers, particularly black sharecroppers and communist leaders in Birmingham. She distributed the Southern Worker and other leaflets. In addition to that, and either to Mino, in addition to Milo's work, Tommy and Ralphie Gray invited a communist organizer named Mac Code um, to help build up, help them build a, a union. Code arrives at a pivotal point in Camp Hill's history and in the history of the sharecroppers union um, getting started. Um, several landlords withdrew, withdrew cash and food advances that were supposed to come because the cotton had just been picked in an effort to create workers for the new Russell Sawmill. Um, the Southern Worker reporter reported that farmers, quote, have enthusiastically welcomed communist leadership as a result um, of this hardship. And sharecroppers advocated, um, so the sharecroppers began to advocate for the continuation of food advances of these food advances, basically giving them food in advance of um, the actual payment of the cotton or their labor of picking the cotton, um, the ability to market their own crops because um, farmers were basically doing it to like pay, to give the farmers the least amount of money, but then holding the cotton until it would make the largest amount of profit. And the farmers wanted to do a similar thing of being able to hold on to the cotton and be able to make um, their own uh, profit, profit margins as well, having their own small gardens to grow their own food, cash rather than wages in kind, a dollar a day minimum wage, and a three-hour break for laborers, and a nine-month school year for their kids. This all comes to a head on July 15th, 1931, um, when Taft Holmes organizes a group of sharecroppers and invited code coppers uh, invited the Showcroppers and Farm Workers Union, the CFWU, and um, or to begin to discuss the um, union in the Scottsboro case. Um, a local sheriff named Kyle Young was informed of the meeting and gathered a group and raided the place. He is reported to have famously said, "Quote, kill every who, that he wanted to quote kill every member of the Reds and throw them into the creek." Um, um, so he began, he and as uh, well as some of the other local police began to um, get violent with the members who had um, been meeting there and were very abusive to those. They additionally went and assaulted Tommy Gray's home and family. Um, and then they were, they were then met with um, an armed Ralph Gray, um, who was able to save Tommy's family. Um, and then... Um, Holmes, who had orchestrated the meeting, was interrogated poli by police for a while and then, upon his release, fled to Chattanooga. 
Um, this violence did not shop, stop the sharecroppers, um, and still they still felt very determined about what they were doing. About 150 of them met Code just outside of Camp Hill the following evening. And when the sheriff and other, other police arrived at the meeting, they were met with an armed Ralph Gay. The, the accounts of what exactly went down um, during this incident are pretty unclear, but some harsh words were exchanged and they, would, um, and they then shot at each other. Um, sheriff Young received a bullet to the stomach and was immediately rushed to Alexander City Hospital, but Gray was left with multiple gunshot wounds and was then brought to the place where... Um, the people were organizing um they were the organizers were able to hold off the rest of the police ambush to allow most of the organizers to escape but unfortunately Ralph Gray was left behind um over the next few days between 34 and 55 black men were arrested all under the age of 18 um and other acts of violence by the local white community were um were done against local predominantly black sharecroppers as a result of the events that had occurred. Um, and then lawyer Walter White tried to provide legal assistance to those who had been jailed. Um, in addition to Irving Schwab, who Schwab, who was an attorney for the Scottsboro defendants, um, was able to get the release of all but seven of those who were imprisoned. And those the seven that were not able to get released were able to do so after their hearing was postponed indefinitely. Um, the National Communist Party leadership praised this resistance and said it upheld their idea of self-determination. However, ultimately, those conditions did not change. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a great synopsis of everything, Sophia. Very impressed with the uh, storytelling you were able to put together there. And I like completely just uh, think that that's a good, really cohesive narrative of what happened. To kind of add some more context to the rise of the Communist Party in Tallapoosa County, which is where Camp Hill is located, um, one of the sources that we read in class kind of does a great job of discussing this. Um, this was the Sharecroppers Union in Alabama, was titled a source by John Beecher. And in it, he writes that, um, quote, all of the people of the section rushed into the sharecroppers union as soon as they heard of it. Even two ministers supported the movement. Meetings were held in houses and sometimes literature was distributed. And something that's important is that he also says, quote, self-determination of the black belt was mentioned at the meetings. Kind of like Sophia uh, pointed out that the sharecroppers union focus on self-determination or kind of giving them more leverage to uh, have not price conditions set on them but rather make them themselves and other things like that was kind of a big focus of what the party wanted to do and that quote nobody knew very much about the details of the idea when they first joined uh but quote folks in Tallapoosa county say that they were all eager to work for a chance to escape from poverty and fear so this is really important in thinking about why the uh, Communist Party kind of rose in Tallapoosa County. And it was because it kind of, just like Sophia said, came at that integral moment in history where the sharecroppers were really struggling. Financial system and the financial situations were just awful for them. The money that they were making couldn't really provide them with much. Uh, we talked about in class how it was difficult for families to provide for 
uh, their children in addition to, you know, uh, working out in the fields tirelessly for a crop that they didn't get to see really much return on. And that that's even led to struggles with feeding their family. So that's one of the reasons why that food advance is such an important um, part of the story as well. And something that they saw that they could uh, more likely get if they worked collectively through a union, which, you know, almost happened to be sponsored by the Communist Party instead of them, like, specifically seeking out the Communist Party, if that makes sense. And it w- I think it would ultimately be a lot harder for them to do go on their own and then mm-hmm. negotiate with the landowner to try and get in because they're just not going to be as sympathetic. But when you sort of gather a group of people and say, like, this is what we want, you're exactly. going to get a lot more action. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's see. I'm trying to see if there's any other important quotes here. Um Well, I guess kind of adding to how that conflict kind of started and uh, – eventually ensued uh quote naturally enough this organization did not proceed unnoticed or unmolested by the sheriff of Tallapoosa county who had been shot in his first attempt to break it up so they saw that there was you know change coming in a system that they were working to continue to enact that kind of kept the social uh, hierarchy where it was pre-civil war so seeing this you know collective action it kind of put in jeopardy the social structure that was in place and the power structure that was there at the time so the people in power wanted to try and maintain that you know uh position by uh inciting conflict but it also it's pointed out that this conflict is obviously acted on both sides and uh so they were able to you know uh, fight back as well which is something that's important to know and a core core part of this story oh that's a really great point um do you have any more um sort of quotes from this firsthand account i think that like sort of me saying that they were struggling um, is kind of, it's never going to be as powerful as sort of hearing it from themselves, uh, hearing it from someone who had experienced this encounter and personally saw the struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And the quotes, it's interesting because while they are tied into a lot of the sources that we have, uh, the Sharecroppers Union itself, they wanted to try and, um, you know, maintain an air of secrecy of who was in it and who was not just for like security reasons. So it's kind of more difficult to find these firsthand accounts, but I've been looking through the different things and let's see, there was another important one. Okay, well, um, there's also an important point that is made in this same article by John Beecher, where it's stated that uh, thus an attempt at the economic organization of tenant farmers was made to appear as an uprising against, you know, the system at B, the structure at B, uh, or, quote, a bloody race riot, end quote, although it is very doubtful, quote, that any rioting occurred. So that's interesting to think about, too, in how this story is being painted. And that kind of ties really well into this uncovering untold stories or uh, we've talked about earlier in the semester, uh, uncovering or retelling stories again uh, in a way that's kind of more 
equitable or an attempt at telling the full true narrative that's not as biased as maybe the narrative that exists in the current uh, history books. So kind of thinking about that quote and how it ties in as uh, the and how it ties into the larger Camp Hill narrative of those stories that really aren't told, that aren't highlighted. Uh, it is possible that that's a strategic decision as well, that the mm -hmm. stories aren't highlighted simply because uh, that angle of what was happening post-Civil War was not uh, desired to be, you know, brought to the fore. And we've talked about that in classes uh, all throughout our kind of like history uh, courses here at Auburn, I feel like is that importance of who is telling the story and uh, what their motivations are behind, uh, you know, uncovering that history. So thinking and bringing that back to our role as uh, budding public historians for this class, we want to do uh, the best job possible of telling a story that pieces together an entire narrative instead of just pieces that, you know, seem to fit correctly or something like that. Yeah, that's a really great point and really well phrased. Oh, thank you. Um, so we're going to go to our last ad break of the hour, but we'll see you in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me here live on Winkle 91.1 FM. Um, and we're finishing up today's episode on the history of Camp Hill. We hope you've enjoyed. Um, we sort of wanted to sort of end our episode with our sort of final wrapping up thoughts about our work with Camp Hill, but also just like what Camp Hill is doing in the present day. Um, I think a lot of it is more grant funding. Um, for instance, Camp Hill is now, has recently beca become part of the Equitable Neighborhood Act. The um, ENI, or um, the, orga the federal organization that's sponsoring it, mission statement is that it equips communities to address the pandemic related issues of today while building capacity to deal with the health and quality of life challenges of tomorrow. So this federally funded initiative to expand health equity through connects youth and adults as a way to improve health outcomes by creating a local health equity plan and drafting a, ho uh, a health resource directory and building a healing zone. Um, they're also getting some other grants as well, but we chose to highlight this one. Um, and sort of d dealing with the um, damage of the hailstorm that Victoria mentioned earlier. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it seems like Camp Hill is definitely at that, you know, pivotal point where they're working to um, increase their identity uh, through, uh, you know, defining it in those grant applications and things like that, and definitely working to move towards uh, continued economic revival through their work in addressing those things. And then we've also discussed in class about how uh, additional uh, focus on media and kind of bringing a more uh, regular publication of news to Camp Hill will also help them. Uh, we got to talk with a professor from the Department of Journalism here in the College of Liberal Arts as well and her work to uh, increase the support system for rural newspapers in, across rural Alabama in our uh, general vicinity. And that's been a super exciting uh, thing for that community as well. And that Camp Hill is definitely trying to involve multiple generations in getting their uh, media, their newspaper, their publications more regularly disseminated to the people. Yeah. 
I'm really glad that Auburn is doing more outreach work and really trying to, I guess, just do better work for the communities around it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like, you know, a great, great, like final ending statement is that Auburn is doing such great work and really, uh, you know, focusing on their mission as a land grant institution to make a difference in Alabama, which is super exciting and really, really an honor to get to be a part of. Yeah, it's great to be an Auburn Tiger. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Hello, it's me again, Sophia, and as promised, here I'm going to include some of the voices of Camp Hill residents about their experiences living in Camp Hill. First up, this is Dorothy Moore. My great-great-grandfather started the church. Oh, really? John Johnson Slaughter. Oh, you're a descendant of the Slaughters. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you... And I've been a member all my life. Mm. Been raised in it, and I'll say that. And I've lived in Camp Hill all my life. Mm. Why do you uh, follow the Unitarian Universalist faith? Um, is it family-based, or what's what's the justification for your belief set? Well, like I said, I was brought up in it, so I guess you know that that's what I was brought up in, and that's what I've always followed. Okay. I like people, and I believe in the worth of people. Were you, you were around when the Unitarian Universalist merger happened. It was in 1961, wasn't it, when the Unitarians and Universalists combined? I was thinking it was a little before that, but I've got it some, somewhere here. Did much change when the merger happened? Or yeah, what? well, not immediately. Not immediately. But it's changed a lot now. How so? The Unitarians and the Universalists were a lot alike but yet they had their different ways, and I'm still a universalist, mm -hmm. <laughs> more than a Unitarian. Mm -hmm. Could you describe for the listeners what that means? I'm not into a lot of these liberal programs that the Unitarians have. Mm -hmm. I'm into more doing, helping people every day. Mm -hmm. My religion is every day. Mm -hmm. It's not on Sunday. But um, that's what I just try, try to live every day. Would you call, say, that your beliefs are, I know the Unitarian Universalists are different on this, would you say it's Christian, your beliefs? Do you believe in God and Jesus? I'm undecided. Mm -hmm. Okay. I always have been. So back to when the merger happened, uh, can you describe what happened, basically? Mm. With the merger? Yeah, at least here in Camp Hill, like... Uh, well, like I said, it took a, a while for it to come about in uh, Camp Hill because uh, there's a lot of organizational changes with, um, for instance, what our bylaws said a long time ago are not what the Unitarians go along with so much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with Lyman Ward and his military academy? I think so. I was brought up with his granddaughter. Oh, really? <laughs> and my mother and his daughter were best friends all through the years till, till his daughter died first. And I, when his granddaughter was here visiting, I stayed over there with her a, a good bit, and she stayed here. Mm -hmm. 
And I graduated from Lyman Ward School. The military academy? Or it wasn't the military academy. It was Lyman Ward School, and it was co-educational. Okay. Okay, that, that'll be good. But useful. I went as a day student. You went as a day student. Mm -hmm. It was co-ed. Okay. So you're a member of a descendant of the Slaughter family. What can you tell me about Mary Slaughter? Mary, and I have this, she's related, as you can tell. Um, she came from John Johnson's Slaughter family, too, mm -hmm. also. And she was already grown up and gone when I, you know, first started hearing about her. And her, she had a son that was about my age. I think he was a few years older. But when she was visiting her mother, I don't, I think her father had, was already dead, but Peter would play with all of us that were at church, and we had a good good youth group then. Mm -hmm. What role did she have in the church? I've seen something about women's minutes. Did, was she a leader, or what did she really do? Well, she did with the national organization mm -hmm. in Boston. Oh, I see, so she worked she with the higher-ups? She wasn't here, yeah. Oh, okay, she wasn't from here. She just knew when her yeah. kids were here. She was born and raised here, but she did her most of her work in Boston. Okay, that's really helpful. And her husband was a minister too. What's what was his name? Clinton Lee Scott. Are there any other? Do you are familiar with all the prominent families of Camp Hill? When I spoke to Earl, he mentioned, of course, the Slaughters, the Hendersons, I think it is, and the uh, the Langleys. Mm -hmm. Are there any other major families that have been around since the early times that mm -hmm. I, other the than what Slaughters I was... The Slaughters and the Hendersons and the Langleys. That's it? They all lived at, about four or five miles out of town and they all lived together and they intermarried. So just those three? Mm -hmm. That Those were the first three settlers that came here back in the early 1800s. What can you tell me about recent developments here in Camp Hill? Is the church shrinking largely? Yeah, very bad. Why do you think this is? Well, I hate to say leadership. Is it a phenomenon unique to this church, or is it happening on a larger scale, do you think? or you? It's, it's happening with small churches. Mm -hmm. When I spoke with Earl, he told me that it was because of local demographics, like as the people moved out of Camp Hill, mm -hmm. that was why mm -hmm. it happened. He mentioned some civil rights mm -hmm. activities that might have contributed to this. Are you familiar with what this mm -hmm. might be, the civil rights stuff? Mm -hmm. Could you uh, tell me? Mm -mm. You can't? Okay. <laughs> I don't want to get into that. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Well, before we close the interview, is there anything you'd like for my, the listeners to know about yourself and the church? Well, as I said, I was born into it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, it's always been a big part of my life until, I'll say, the last year. But I can't hear good. Mm -hmm. And when I... Even when after they bought the new speaker system, I just got to where I didn't go. I mean, you just sit there and you look up in front of you, and that's and you don't hear what's going on. So that's the reason I don't go. Next up is Earl Langley. Well, my name is Earl T. Langley Jr. Mm -hmm. and uh, I am was was born in Opelika, but raised in Lee 
chambers in Tallapoosa counties. And we moved, my family moved, well actually my father and grandfather and all were raised right here, born right outside of town. And uh, so this church, um, the, uh, as you have seen on the stained glass windows upstairs, um, those are my ancestors. And uh, they are the founding members of this church. I don't know the exact relationship, so <laughs> it'd be hard to pick out one, but we are kin. And uh, my father, grandfather, grandmother, and all, aunts, uncles, cousins, and all were members of this church for many years. And I joined in about 62, somewhere along in there. Mm -hmm. And um, so I have been uh, a member for a long time. Um, I lived in Montgomery for 26 years and uh, retired down there, but I have started to come back to Camp Hill. But we moved here permanently in 1960. And uh, so I graduated from high school, in, from Camp Hill High School in 1964. And uh, so I attended Auburn University, and, uh, went, went, joined the Navy, and um, subsequently came back and finished out at Auburn in uh, my degree in finance. But um, um, I ended up with a job a few years later with the state of Alabama in the Emergency Medical Services Division and I worked for that for them, like I said, for 26 years until I retired January the 1st, 2008. And uh, been more or less here uh, working on getting rid of property in Montgomery. You were around when the Unitarian Universalist merger happened in 1961, I believe. Somewhere around 61. Yeah. What, what really happened to you uh, here? When that happened? Did anything change or is it? No, not really. Um, the, uh, we had a few preachers that were kind of different that came in, if I remember. Uh, I remember one that I liked, enjoyed his sermons. His name was Argyle Hauser. Mm -hmm. He, uh, he gave some good sermons, very similar uh, in aspect to what Brother Prater, Leonard Prater, preached on. And uh, I enjoyed his sermons. And then we had a few others. Uh, don't remember who came. Might have been one or two out of Atlanta or out of Auburn or someplace like that. Mm -hmm. I don't remember their names. And, uh, but as far as anything really happening, no, we kept, we kept our universalist heritage uh, pretty much strictly and, and, and adhered to it. Mm -hmm. We have all sorts of beliefs. Uh, I'll say from, from some of them that, are, uh, that have still attend the Baptist church mm -hmm. in their hometown but come here for a different view to all the way to some of them, of course, uh, you both Unitarians and Universalists, mm -hmm. or some are atheists, mm -hmm. all the way from that aspect, all the way to the other other spectrum. Uh, are you familiar with Lyman Ward? Uh, yes, of course. In uh, his school? He came here in, I hope I get this date right, 1898, mm -hmm. and founded the Southern Industrial Institute, mm -hmm. which was a school for children who really didn't have anywhere else to go. Uh, a lot of my family attended. The, uh, my aunt, my father, uh, my grandmother, uh, all attended uh, the Southern Industrial Institute. Then in the 
50s, I believe it became Lyman Ward Military, early 50s, became Lyman Ward Military Academy. And they got the ROTC program connected right. with it. Now, he, of course, he was a Unitarian mm -hmm. minister. Um, and the cadets uh, attended this church mm -hmm. almost every Sunday. They would march from Lyman Ward over to here attend the sermons and we did used to of course have sermons uh, every Sunday mm -hmm. but then it dropped off to every fourth Sunday. When did that happen? Uh, probably in the 60s, 70s. Okay. Alright so for our little last always thank you segment um, we have a little bit more thank yous um, today. We want to thank the people of Camp Hill for speaking to us and giving us opportunity to learn more about your community and have been so incredibly kind to us and we're so incredibly grateful for your support um, and we wish you the best. Um, we want to thank the Otters College at Auburn University for funding this work and funding our trip to DC. We love you. Um, thank you so much. Um, we want to thank Dr. Ibera and Dr. Gaddis, our professors for this class, who have done an excellent work in guiding us and um, teaching us about the community of Camp Hill, but also in a way that forces us to engage critically with historical work um, as a whole, and also just encouraging us to be independent and do it ourselves, but um, but also work together and collaborate. There's a um, they've done a really great job of doing that balance and are just really great professors. We want to thank our classmates, Clara, Alexis, Sarah, and Ollie. Y'all are also doing really great work. Um, we really enjoy getting to collaborate with y'all um, and can't wait to see all the other work that we, we get to do. Um, we want to thank the Appalachian Regional Commission for um, sponsoring this conference and um, speaking with us and hopefully um, giving funding to Camp Hill as well. As always, our usual thank yous. Thank you to the History Department and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz, for our, your continued support of our work and our project. We thank you so much. Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for our support of the History Department and therefore us as well. Um, truly amazing. And as always, thank you to Weagle for giving us your airtime and your support. We truly could not do this without you guys. We truly would be lost. So we're so incredibly grateful. And as always, thank you, dear listener. Truly, we do this because we want to reach out to people and we want people to listen. And we're so incredibly grateful. We found out this morning that we are at 450 total downloads. Woo! So that is so incredibly amazing that people, we, we can go on here and talk, but we're just grateful people want to listen. Exactly, exactly. With that being said, um, so we're going to wrap up today's episode um, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time. <laughs>